you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, and I brought in something from home this morning, so. How many of you have one of these at home still? Anyway, what do you do with an old letterman's jacket? You, you bring it to church for an illustration about every five years. <laughs> All right. So we can know. <laughs> was never meant to be worn buttoned. I can get it on. I wouldn't say it fits. I wouldn't say it fits. Well, let's see. Oh, hey. It's not good. It could be worse, right? This is my opening illustration this morning. I'm going to leave this on for a few minutes, and then I'll toss it into the crowd in just a second here. (laughs) My um, freshman year in high school, I played two sports, in case you couldn't tell here, basketball and volleyball. And uh, my parents asked me, Eric, what do you want for Christmas? And I said, oh, I, kn- I know what I want. I want a letterman's jacket. And our school letterman's jacket was a big deal. I don't know that it's such a big deal anymore, but it was a big deal in our school at that time. Uh, it was definitely a way, just a marker of showing, I'm an athlete. I'm a formidable person. I'm someone to deal with. I've got some cachet, some status. And uh, I, of course, wanted that status. And so in my hubris, to be honest with you, I felt like I already had that status. I just needed everybody else to know that. So I just needed everybody else to know I was a big deal, right? So I did a pretty foolish thing. I got this letterman's jacket for Christmas. And when Christmas break was over, I returned to school with it, and, and I had the shop embroider my name and my sports and my year over here, 94. Some of you are doing the math. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't have this yet. I didn't have the letter. And I did a stupid thing, which was that right after getting this for Christmas, I wore it to school without the letter. And to be honest with you, I didn't even know I didn't even know that there was a specific criteria that you had to meet with the athletic department to be awarded your letter. I didn't even know. I just kind of knew you couldn't buy it at the shop, but figured the school would give it to me at some point, but I didn't know. And so I can still remember one of the, I've had a lot of humbling moments in my life. This is one of them. One of the guys coming up to me at school one of the lettermen, one of my classmates. And he walked up to me and said, why are you wearing that jacket? And I said, because I'm an athlete. He said, but you're not a letterman. And I said, but I will be. And he said, but you're not. (laughs) You're not. So pretty humbling. I uh, got home that day put the jacket in the closet for a little while and waited to actually get my, my letter, which did happen later that year, but um, nevertheless. So I had this self-perceived status, something that wasn't actually true of me yet. And I was really eager to project this to others so that they would think highly of me. And so I covered myself in this outward symbol of status that I wanted others 
to see and believe, even though I didn't yet possess it. And in our passage today, the Apostle Paul's correction, he serves kind of like, his voice here is sort of like my classmate who came up to me and confronted me about wearing a status that was not actually true. And here Paul confronts this group in Rome who claim a superior status because they were Jewish, because they were knowledgeable in the law, even teaching the law. But the reality is that they were still lawbreakers. And so Paul confronts them in their self-righteous pride. They prided themselves in these things, even though, even though it was by some of those things that they were actually condemned. So the top line, the big point I want us to take away this morning is this, that the law only convicts us. Symbols don't save us. Only Christ can redeem us. So similar to last week, Paul continues with his diatribe. We talked about that fancy word, number one. A diatribe is an imaginary sort of conversation a teacher uses to press their points with their audience. And the same as with last week, his interlocutor, the person with whom he's engaging, would be kind of this self-righteous Jew who prides himself in knowledge of God's law, even teaching God's law, and also through the outward symbol of circumcision. So they held all of this pride about these sort of outward things, and at the same time looked down on the crowd of Gentiles who didn't keep the law, didn't even know the law, didn't even try to know or keep the law. And so they sort of created this two-tiered, second-class citizen kind of thing. Verse 17. Now, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, uh, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So our first point this morning of, of three, don't pride yourself in mere knowledge of God's law. Don't hold that up and maintain that as the source of, of pride. Paul's questions here, he basically gives this kind of rhetorical barrage uh, to bring a self-righteous person to their knees. He's trying to produce in them humility. Understand, he's not driving them to moralism. He's not saying the bar is higher, work harder. He's saying the bar is higher than you can achieve, you've missed it, and salvation is going to come by another means. He's not pressing them to moralism He's pressing them to realize that they are sinners in need of a savior. Uh, in, in the Greek, each of these questions here in sort of this cascade uh, are what we call first-class conditionals. In other words, it, it's, it's something that is assumed to be true. The condition is assumed to be true. But he keeps hitting it. You can imagine if I came up to you and just said something like, so you're a Christian. And you would kind of understand that I'm leveraging off of that and, 
and sort of moving forward. But what Paul is trying to get to is essentially this, do you practice what you preach? Do you walk the talk? Because you're projecting this air of righteousness, self-righteousness, because of your knowledge of the law, what instruction you've received, the position you have to teach other, the influence you think you have, but aren't you also a lawbreaker? Aren't you also a lawbreaker? So why pride yourself on what you know when you know you violate the law just as others do? Why the pride? And Paul does something more here than just expose uh, this inconsistency with these questions. He, he really pokes him in the eye with this phrase here. Um, this is an old phrase that, the, uh, that a, a, a law-knowing, law-touting Jew would have been very well aware of. Uh, this phrase, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This phrase harkens back into Israel's history. 700 years prior, the northern kingdom has already been destroyed by Assyria. The southern kingdom now is about to fall to Babylon. And God has sent his prophets forward, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, to confront the sin and idolatry of Judah and to let them know this is the destruction that's about to happen and this is the time. It's going to, it's going to be for 70 years. But as these uh, prophets speak about uh, what's going to happen and God's rebuke of Israel, both Isaiah and Ezekiel use this phrase. So, and Isaiah, you don't have to turn there. Isaiah 52.5, it starts like this. And now what do I have here, declares the Lord. For my people have been taken away for nothing, and those who rule them mock, declares the Lord. All day long, my name is constantly blasphemed. Therefore, my people will know my name. Therefore, in that day, they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. And then again in Ezekiel 36.22, Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, uh, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. In other words, Israel was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are supposed to see their celebration of God's law, the true, the good, and the beautiful, and, and the glory of their lives, and, and, and that was supposed to glorify and honor the Lord. Uh, he says as much in chapter 49, in Isaiah 49, I will make you a light for the Gentiles so that my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. They were supposed to be a visual of God's goodness, but instead they lived in disobedience and idolatry. They lived exactly like the Gentiles rather than being a light to the Gentiles. I was thinking about this um, the other day here, and if you remember a couple weeks ago, I picked on Portland a little bit, and I'm going to pick on them again today. Uh, for sort of the, the liberal-minded uh, community out there, there are a few cities that are sort of propped up as the shining light of, of their ambitions and what they would like to see in the world. San Francisco is one of those. Portland is one of those. And, I, and interestingly, I just want to say, go look at it and see if it's the light. <laughs> see if it's the light you made it out to be or intended it to be. 
Uh, I just learned this week, maybe you heard about it too, Target is uh, closing down three stores in the Portland area because of rampant theft. So for all of the cries and all of the uh, agenda items that they wanted to see, it simply fell in on itself. It's beginning to crumble. It's beginning to fall in from the inside out because it's not sustainable. So what the liberals held out as a light and goodness to those uh, so that they could see this as a, as a means for uh, what the good was, it's showing itself to be false. But the Jewish community had done the same thing, not only in the past, in, in Israel's past, 700 years prior, but now this community in Rome also. And so Paul, talk about a serious poke in the eye. Remember what God did to Judah when they blasphemed his name among the nations? It's you. And you're doing the same thing right now. So he is comparing this present community of Rome to this punished community Israel of old. They both had failed to keep the law. And they knew it well. So his point is mere knowledge of the, of the law, that's no source for pride. Ability to teach the law, that's no source of pride. Ability to judge and condemn others for their not keeping the law, that's no source of pride. You're in the same boat. You're in the same boat. This brings us to our second point. The law has value, but not saving power. This is a nuanced point. It's important to make. A bit of a caveat here. I think it's really easy for us at times, especially as New Testament readers, when we talk about the law, um, we end up talking about legalism and sort of the abuses of, of the law, especially when we're looking at Galatians or Romans or something like this. And we can end up thinking that the law of God was a bad thing. And that's not the case. So I want to, again, kind of a nuanced point here. The law was actually a good thing. When it was received by Israel, it was received as a gift. It was received as something that they loved. They took pride in knowing what their God wanted of them and how to live in a way that was pleasing to him. It was a good moral guide. Uh, Think about uh, Psalm 119. Uh, And I'm going to read a few passages here. Psalm 119, starting at verse 97 Listen to how the psalmist delights in the law. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Overall, the law of God was good. It was good for Israel. They delighted in it. But there is a fine line between the morality that comes through the law and moralism. There is a fine line between the law and legalism. The law is good, it has value, but it does not have saving power. The morality that comes from the law was a good thing, but moralism and legalism are when we turn the law from a good thing into a God thing. And that is the failure there. Uh, I was reading some Tim Keller this week, as I'm prone to do. Um, 
I miss that guy. I'm sorry that he's gone, but he's uh, more alive now than ever. Um, but he was, he, this is his, he developed this. He talked about some signs of the moral, signs that you might be a moralist. This is like Jeff Foxworthy's, you know, you might be a redneck, but it's like church version. Signs you might be a moralist. I thought this was really insightful. A moralist will be smug. A moralist will be smug because after all, they're really good people. They're good. They tend to be smug. A moralist will be oversensitive. Their goodness is their righteousness, which means if you confront them, condemn them, correct them, they're defensive. So they'll be very sensitive to critique. A moralist will tend to be judgmental. They've got to make others, they've got to bring others down so they can feel better about themselves. A moralist will be anxious because their acceptance to God in their mind is by what they've done and they will always wonder, have I done enough? I thought those were really insightful signs that you might be a moralist, smug, oversensitive, judgmental, and anxious. And so Paul basically exposes uh, Israel's faulty pride here in two different ways. Number one, their, their false pride in the law. And then the second one here is pride in a symbol of their acceptance, which was circumcision. So verse 25. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. So pride is this huge undercurrent, uh, really, through this whole passage and, and this correction here that we're, we're looking at. Because the Jews generally looked down on the Gentiles as second-class citizens. And circumcision was another one of these sources of pride. It was this symbol of Israel's covenant relationship with God. To, to bear this mark was to claim to be in this bi-directional covenant. That God has called me one of his own. And that I have committed to live in a certain way with regard to him. So there is this pride. I'm going to refer to this or, or liken this to the wedding ring, right? So I have my wedding ring here. Actually, this, this last week, for whatever reason, it was feeling a little tight. Here, I don't know if I'm the only one that gets that. I was like, ouch, is it time for resizing or lay off the salt? or I don't know what's going on here. So I, I took it off, took me a few minutes to work it off, and I set it down, and then later on I tried to put it back on, and it wouldn't go on. So I had to tell Amy, hey, I took it off because it's a little uncomfortable. Don't freak out. You know. But this symbol for Israel was kind of like a wedding ring, a symbol of their covenant, a bidirectional expectation. And what Paul is saying here, in a sense, is, so what? You have the wedding ring. Who cares? Who cares what symbol, what covenant it is supposed to convey if you don't live up into the substance of it? Who cares if you wear this outward symbol that says, I belong to someone when you live in such a way that you're out playing the field? The symbol's false. It's meaningless if it isn't backed 
by his substance. It's only an outward symbol of an inward reality. Meaningless if the substance is gone. Verse 28. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. And that's our last point here. Salvation is a matter, it's not a matter of outward symbols, but of our inward heart. Now, at this point, I'm going to sort of leave the historical context of the Jew-Gentile situation, and I'm going to bring this forward in just, just to modern day. In fact, with this passage, you could almost, and don't do this all the time, this is not a wise thing to do all the time, but in this passage, you can almost substitute the word Christian for Jew. And it would sound something like this. So you claim to be a Christian. You go to church regularly. Three out of four. You know the core tenets of the faith. You've even been to welcome lunch and membership class. You've got numerous passages of Scripture memorized. Numerous. You have the ability to teach others, and you've done so in many classes. You've been even given a position to do so. Small group leader, Bible study, elder, pastor, deacon. Here's the question. Is your so-called faith a matter of outward show or inward reality? Are you claiming the label Christian for what you do or for what God has done for you in Christ Jesus? Are you a Christian outwardly only or are you one from the inside out? Religious knowledge and religious practice will not save we must respond to the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit to be saved. And so I'll say it this way. This is in the same way that Paul is poking his audience in the eye. I'm going to poke you in the eye. Some of you Christians need to get saved. Salvation is not a matter of your outward acts. It's not a matter of what you do. It is a matter of what Christ has done for you. In Galatians 6, 14, Paul says this, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule to the Israel of God. Or as C.S. Lewis said, Jesus didn't come to make nicer people, but what? New men new from the inside out. I'm going to pray uh, this morning here before we turn to the Lord's Supper. And if you are carrying around the status, the label of Christian, but it is only a matter of outward actions, but not yet a matter of the inward heart of turning in repentance and faith to Christ and his salvation for you, then I want to ask you, who carry the label Christian to truly become one now. Let's pray. Father, as with Israel, we have sinned. We know your righteous standard, your holy standard, and we have not met it. We all of us, every one of us in this room, 
is the default position of a sinner in need of a savior. Father, I confess that my morality, my goodness, my actions, my service, what I know, none of these things has saving power. So I turn in faith to Jesus Christ, the one who obeyed the law for me, the one who came and died on my behalf, the one whose righteousness can be given to me. And so I take refuge in the sacrifice of Christ. I acknowledge that I am a Christian, not by what I have done, but because of what he has done for me. Save me from the penalty of my sin. Draw me to yourself. Teach me how to live out the goodness of Christ. We pray these things in his holy name. Amen.